Okay, welcome to today's episode of InfoSec Journeys. We're really pleased today to be joined by Sarah Armstrong-Smith, the Chief uh, Security Advisor at Microsoft. Sarah, thank you for taking the time to join us today. Uh, we've got a lot to pick apart with you about <laughs> your work background, also your education background as well, uh, and also the other things you get involved in within the InfoSec landscape. Before we peel you apart and pick you apart, let me throw it over to you for a quick intro. Tell us who you are and what you're all about. Yeah, thanks, Colin. So yeah, Sarah Armstrong-Smith, I uh, joined uh, Microsoft in April. So I actually joined one week after we went into lockdown. So I spent my entire career in, in this office, literally. Um, so part of my role is I actually um, liaise to C-suite uh, with strategic customers, so primarily UK financial services, um, but also customers in Ireland, Sweden and Norway. Um, so my role is really to, li to liaise at that kind of CISO level, that strategic level, understand some of the challenges that customers have, either with cloud adoption and with COVID in particular, there's obviously been a big focus on remote working and all of those things combined. Um, and then I also do a lot of external conferences and events and all sorts of things. So it's quite varied, really interesting. Yeah, really great role, actually. How have you found that then with uh, with onboarding during COVID? It's, it's a little, it was a little odd. Um, so I kind of missed out doing all of the, was, there was meant to be a whole series of boot camps and all sorts of things. I should have gone to Seattle, the head office. I think there was going to be an event in Vegas. Missed all of that. Um, so it's been a bit odd, uh, but I spend my life on Teams now. So um, like all the conferences and meeting with customers and all of that. So it's just something I've got used to. Yeah, so it's a little... I think a little missed out a little bit, but it's just something that you get used to, I think. I think Microsoft really upped their game with Teams as well, right? Just at the oh, right yeah, time. Yeah, absolutely. They? I, mean, I think some of the stats were, um, so we had 17 million active users a day and we're now at 115 million. Wow. And actually, wow. Um, our CEO, Satya Nadella, he um, was talking to some analysts in June and he's basically said that we've seen two years of digital transformation in two months. So many, many companies, if they weren't already on their way to cloud, they, they moved really swiftly into cloud and mainly actually in that sharing and collaboration on Teams. Um, so it was all about if I'm going to have to work remotely, how do I continue to communicate with my people, customers, all of that kind of thing? So, so Teams has literally exploded, literally overnight. <laughs> I, I think it's crazy. You know, you would think, well, I would think sitting on the outside, a large organization like Microsoft would actually take quite a lot of time to um, spin up enough resources to handle that many active monthly users. But I assume it it was either it was the application was built to scale that high oh, yeah yeah absolutely i mean you've got to think about microsoft it's, it's a hyperscale so the size mm. of the cloud and everything else like that so microsoft basically has three cloud platforms um so we've got microsoft 365 we've got azure and then we've got dynamics and on top of that we've got xbox as well so i mean the whole beauty of the cloud is it is actually designed to expand you know based on demand and that kind of thing so it was already set up to do that. Um, and I think even pre-COVID, um, it was already set to that you could sort of expand dependent on you know, who you are. So if you had specific customer demands like retail, let's say over Easter, Christmas, um, we had regional outages. And then we, what we're dealing with is an international outage. 
So it means that we've had to basically be able to move a lot of that traffic around, um, particularly like Xbox, for example. So that's something that's in our gift to be able to kind of move across different servers and that kind of thing. So I think Microsoft was already able to scale at mass, but I think was what was being really interesting from my perspective sitting on the inside um, is they kind of got three, three jobs they had to do. So they had to keep Microsoft up. They had to keep all their existing customers up and then they've had to onboard huge amounts of customers you know on mass at very short notice um one of which in the uk was actually the nhs so you know the ability to manage covid and a major major crisis situation um, where you can't go and see your doctor you can't share patient records you, there's so much things they couldn't do um so they actually had to adopt teams on mass and and I think the, the, the beauty of Teams in particular um, is it inherits, if you like, all the security and privacy and everything else that's built into Office. So um, I think that's what kind of makes that particular platform stand out from some of the other sort of um, conference tools and that kind of thing. So it's just been really interesting to kind of see all of that stuff that goes on internally as well. Uh, yeah, I think that's absolutely amazing. I think it, it, I, I, it's amazing to get that little bit of insight into what must be a massive, well-oiled machine. <laughs> but I know I know we're really early on to the podcast here, and it's a really deep question. But do you think the cloud saved Microsoft? Do you think Do you think that 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 they're going so far into um, Azure? Sorry, Azure, um, and adopting cloud um, workloads and uh and and all of that functionality do you think it saved microsoft as an organization um i don't know it's difficult for me to say in terms of microsoft pre-cloud if that makes sense mm. um but i think microsoft runs on microsoft so yeah. i mean we are 100 percent cloud give or take a few applications which are kind of residual if you like so all of that lessons learned and all of those things is what we then utilize for our customers and even, you know, if you think about Xbox, so Xbox, I think, is nearly 20 years old already. But that actually has enabled um, Microsoft to build loads of technologies around IoT. And, you know, how do you actually secure all of those type of devices and all of that? So everything kind of goes into a big feedback loop, I think. So it's been really interesting just about... Um, you know how many not just Microsoft but how many customers are actually moving to the cloud but moving on mass as well um, which I think is just a kind of really interesting kind of side output from COVID as well if you can take any benefits away from it. Mm. Well, it's funny because I mean certainly on the collaboration side of things I know um, uh, personally in our own business that teams re really feel like they can collaborate more remotely um and, and i think that it's bizarre it's counterintuitive but i think that is co you know completely testament we use we're a big microsoft house right and uh, it's completely testament to the to the development in teams and the support that it can give us as a business where people literally feel more connected and, ha and can have easier conversations with people and things just work and yeah it's, it's and i think if it wasn't for that type of technology i mean how many people would feel so isolated you know mm. right now um and then just that ability to continue to communicate but even over the last you know maybe five six months Microsoft has kind of been listening to all the feedback from customers and they're accelerating a lot of the product development that was potentially already in flight um, so there's a lot of like data loss prevention and stuff that's now built into teams in particular 
to stop you actually sharing sensitive information or sensitive documents, that kind of thing. So, you know, if you were to write, let's say, a credit card number or something like that, it would block it. Um, so it's just, it's, just, it's just things like that that are continuing to evolve mm. as we get that feedback from customers. And that, that, as I sort of said before, it's kind of like a big continuous feedback loop into a lot of that product development and kind of what's on the horizon. Um, I think with the, certainly, I mean, Microsoft loses like massive amounts of machine learning, uh, data analytics, all of that kind of stuff. And that is also feeding its way back into a lot of the products and a lot of how customers can leverage that as well, particularly from a security perspective. Yeah, must be an amazing machine. How um, So you, you obviously interface with a lot of customers, as you said earlier, um, at the C-suite level, the exec level, you see the kind of strategic directions that businesses are, are moving towards. H how have the challenges outside of Microsoft in your customer space changed since COVID then? What, what's the kind of key issues that they're facing, especially around um, security? I think a lot of it was that they weren't set up to do with remote working on mass. So they might have had uh, mobile workers or, you know, in term, and then, but to do that at scale for a long time has actually, they've identified quite a number of gaps in their technology. I think one of them is, is around VPN. Um, so they weren't, the VPN wasn't scaled, you know, to have that many concurrent users that all the traffic's almost going back through their data centers, which is slowing all that productivity down. Um, and then users get frustrated because if they can't get access to their tools or actually the things don't work properly, there's higher probability that they're going to look for workarounds. And this is when they start downloading stuff off the internet or they use, you know, non-approved, um, technologies and that kind of thing. Um, and that's when you just have that whole issue around shadow IT. Um, we've seen so many companies that weren't set up for bring your own device. Um, but actually many, many companies didn't have devices that they could actually just give to users. So they've almost had to change a lot of their policies on the fly. And then I think also we've identified there's a massive increase in COVID-19 related phishing laws and that kind of thing. So cyber criminals are kind of the... Um, exploiting exploiting the crisis and exploiting the fact that many people are highly stressed at the moment and they're utilizing that to their advantage so you've kind of got this kind of perfect storm if you like um you know and i think many companies have kind of been in a crisis management mode for quite a number for quite a long time and it, the focus was all about availability so it was all about how can i get people as up and running as quickly as possible and dare I say that may have been at the detriment to some security and governance controls. So they're kind of having to go back and make sure that they're um, filling the holes, if you like. Uh, but I think some, some companies have found it much more of a challenge than others. So I think if you were born in the cloud, you know, if you are kind of like a, if you're a digital native, they found it a lot easier than some of these much bigger, older institutions that are still running a lot of on-prem, some of them still running mainframes, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and they're having to evolve very, very, very quickly. But the other thing that we've seen, which is a another big benefit, is how quickly decisions are being made now. I mean, it used to be that you had to go through all these different gates and, um, you know, different sign-off protocols and this, that and the other. So for you to actually make a decision or to get a new project in or whatever, could have taken weeks or months. Now it's happening in, in days.
you know it's literally just the whole the whole everything is accelerating that mass so it's, it's quite an interesting decline as thought as what we thought might happen over the next over years is actually happening in months how do you uh, so you know looking at um your past from a you know governance and risk and assessment background how do you think that's affecting um cybersecurity? do you think because we're moving at such a fast pace that like you said previously cybersecurity has almost been a bit of an afterthought but now it now it almost has to run in parallel do oh, you yeah. think do yeah. we think us as an industry we're keeping up with the the amount of change or we're actually falling behind a little bit um, still a little bit behind, I would sort of say, but I think, you know, again, if I, I always look to where's the positive. So every time I come from a business continuity background by trade, so I'm used to being on the front line of many, many major incidents and crisis scenarios and that kind of thing. So I always look at where's the opportunity? What can we learn from this? You know, no matter what's gone on, how bad it is. And therefore I look at what's the opportunity with cybersecurity? And I think one of the biggest things that it's really showing is that cyber is not an IT problem. It's a business problem. Um, and with that kind of acceleration of change that's coming. So I think a lot of companies are rethinking their business models. They're rethinking about how they engage with consumers. How do they get products out quickly? All of those things combined actually has to have a security layer that goes with it. Um, but because if, we, if we're rushing out to get products to the market without that security layer built in, um, we end up actually causing a rod for our own back, I think, because we end up just causing more issues. So I think actually there's a, I feel there's a real positive change that security, but also resilience as well built into that is getting, is getting a higher elevation, if you like, into that sort of board level conversation. It's much more of a must be built in as opposed to bolted on, which is what we kind of see historically, I think. Do you, do you find it a hard sell with the business continuity? And I guess it's a bit of a loaded question, this, I guess. <laughs> um, so <clears throat> I, I think in many businesses, if not, unless you're a managed service provider, that the security team is a, is a, is a profit drain, right? It, it costs a business money to run a security service. And so we're not generating the, the business any money. And you come towards and say, oh, we haven't had a cyber attack yet, but we want to get ready for one. And it's going to cost you X amount. Like, what, what's that conversation look like? Uh, I think it used to be like that. I think it was it was definitely there was like, you know, it was as you sort of said, it was a drain on the resources. It was an operational cost. There's no tangible benefit, if you like. But I, I really think that over the last few years or so, people have sort of seen it as an absolutely fundamental part of doing business. And actually, I think if you do it right and you do it properly and for the right reasons, it actually turns it into a business differentiator. So I think that's what kind of what we're seeing. And I think with, with like things like COVID, with some of the major data breaches and things that we've seen, I think consumers are, are changing their mindset as well. So it's almost, it's, it's becoming an expectation that um, I'm expecting you to keep my data safe and secure. I'm expecting that if you have a major incident that you've prepared for this. Um, and actually when we're looking at even like something like COVID, we're now something seeing it, something at mass at scale. So there's then the regulators are now kind of sort of also looking at actually you need to kind of Push, keep pushing your boundaries so as I say I, I look I work a lot with um, financial services and the, the push that's coming from the financial services regulators 
is to kind of look at this severe but plausible. So again, if I think about from my business continuity background and you kind of think about the type of scenarios that you're faced with, I've never really seen companies that go right, right, right to the edge you know, of, of the worst, worst possible case scenario, because they always assume I'll be back up and running tomorrow. You know, I, I know this, this incident's only going to last a couple of days. You know, well, the, the incident we're in now is probably going to be a year plus. Um, so I think it's, so we're really being asked to think much, much bigger and wider. And I think as well as you kind of have to start thinking about, you can't just look at it from your own perspective. You need to start looking at it cross sector, across economy, across the globe. Um, particularly if you, if you think about it from a security perspective, we're seeing much more incidents which are focused on destruction rather than just disruption. So if you think around ransomware, if you think about sort of nation state attacks or attacks on critical infrastructure, they are the aim of those is to cause as much disruption and destruction as possible. So they're not just stealing data, they're deleting data as well. <laughs> it's almost like they're parting gift on the way out. So those are the those are the type of like much, much bigger scenarios than we than most companies can deal with on their own. So actually that ability to share and collaborate is actually really critical in a cybersecurity space. Cool. I like that. Um, what? Let's let's pedal it all the way back to all the way back, all the way back to <laughs> Sarah Armstrong Smith, um, nineteen ninety seven. Let's go back there. <laughs> so, is uh, I mean, it was that your first technical ish role, or do you did you did you start much earlier than that? Uh, yeah, I'd probably say so. Um, I was working in a fraud department. Um, at, so what is what was called PHH vehicle management service that most people will know as Arvel now or All Star field cards. Okay. Um, so that was my role was to look at um, fraud on field cards. Um, so that was quite an interesting role uh, because a lot of the it's not like it is today when you can automatically block a card. There's there was no such thing back then. If you remember, if you can think that far back if you used to have if a card had been lost or stolen it used to appear on a sheet <laughs> and you're expecting like shop assistants to go through a sheet and they were never going to do that yeah. uh, so and and from fuel cards perspective there was kind of no limit necessarily on how much fuel you could have because if you're an arctic lorry for example you could easily fill up 800 you know pounds worth of diesel or what have you but that was my job was to then look at any instances of lost and stolen cards and then and then how do we deal with that so um, yeah so that was quite interesting and then i actually moved into um, a role at thames water um, where i was working in an account management kind of area if you like um, but I actually, I would always sort of say is my career, if you like. So although I'd had roles before that, um, my, I always sort of say my career really started in 1999, um, which was, was around the year 2000 program. Um, so I was kind of, there was a, so I found myself in this situation, which was very much focused around what tests had to be done on the stroke of midnight um, to prove that all the IT systems were working and this, that and the other. But I was sort of like, I was sort of thinking, well, what, what, what about everyone else? So being a water company, um, it's probably one of the most heavily regulated of all utilities. So I kind of like, well, if the IT systems are down, how do we get water? 
to people and what if people have special needs what if people are on kidney dialysis machines and you can't go to like these big water bowsers that they were going to put out to go and collect water so that kind of like I didn't know what I was looking at at the time was business continuity to me it just it was just common sense um so that kind of then triggered around what do I need to do to keep the services up to keep the call center up and running um, because one of the regulatory requirements was to have a 24-hour emergency call center so I was like oh, I need to keep the call center up in essence so I had like various different projects going on to um, split the IT lines that were coming in um, to make sure that we could go and collect like the agents and bring them to the site and all that kind of thing and then they're kind of like on a stroke of midnight year 2000 nothing happened literally nothing <laughs> Of course. <laughs> yeah. And then it's like, well, is that, was that a complete and utter waste of money or was that good planning? So they said, oh, let's, no, that was good planning. That was good plan. That's why nothing happened. And then from there, I was then seconded to the head office and I put in um, business continuity plans for engineering and laboratories divisions. But for me, I always wanted to be more involved in the technology and that kind of thing. So in, in 2001, I joined AXA. Um, and I became the um, disaster recovery manager. But within a few months of actually joining, 9-11 happened. Um, and that really kind of kick-started a whole load of work with regards to sort of backups and moving from a traditional sort of backup tape recovery. And I think, remember, at the time, there used to be sort of average of 72 hours recovery for, from backup tapes. Um, and that just really fueled the, the requirements for having data replication um, and that kind of thing. And then there was, so there was a huge programs going on with regards to sort of server consolidation and all of those type of things. And then in 2005, I joined Ernst & Young. Um, and that was my sort of first go at being a, a consultant, if you like. So I used to um, deal with a lot of um, public and private sector customers. My role was sort of either to do consulting or also to do audits as well. So sometimes I would be have the role of an internal auditor and sometimes I would have the role of an external auditor. But actually my very, very first day on the job um, was the 7-7 London bombings. <laughs> so I always find like crisis seems to follow me around everywhere. Yeah, wow. <laughs> and I was actually at a conference. So I was invited to a conference in Amsterdam and news broke while we were all there and everybody was just in complete shock uh it was just like oh my god what's going on so this kind of events are being shown on the tv and loads of people were trying to then phone home either trying to phone their, their friends their, their um, families and that kind of thing but actually because of the extent of the incident um all of the incoming lines were blocked so and and i think a lot of the mobile phone networks were shut down as well so it was that that was another catalyst of change. Well, again, so from that point, from my very, very first day of joining EY, loads of companies started to rethink about their crisis management response. And, and having just thought about 9-11, now, now it's just right on our doorstep, you know, major incidents and that kind of thing. So there's 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 been a couple of like events which have just catalysts for major change. And then, and, um, and then in 1997, I then joined Fujitsu. Um, and I was there for, I, that's my first go into cybersecurity. 
and um, and I was at Fujitsu for 12 years. So that was so from that was a managed services perspective. So again, starting from the position of you know very very big outsourcing contracts that Fujitsu would host and manage in their data centers and that kind of thing. And then it was really about what kind of disaster recovery, what kind of business continuity, and then that kind of morphed itself into well, how do we protect the crown jewels? So, you know, so if I look at this, these are the services that are absolutely critical to my business, and how do we put that security layer around it? And that's kind of how my role then morphed into cyber. That's really fascinating. I'm keen to know as well, uh, I mean, you've, you, you've talked through there some major companies that you've worked for, right? I mean, Microsoft, Fujitsu, EY, AXA, they're, you know, massive players. Um, and no doubt full of very interesting uh, scenarios that you've had to work through. I know you've got a strong education background in the business continuity space as well. And I'm wondering, like, how different or the same um or no let me rephrase how well prepared were you coming out of like um college university that kind of thing with business continuity background into the real world helping businesses protect themselves is the education system kind of geared up for for modern business do you think or is it a lot of you know businesses moving at such a pace that you have to kind of keep up with uh, with their changes well i think actually coming from a business continuity background has actually made it a real, really good opportunity to understand the inner workings of many companies. And I always kind of say, it doesn't really matter what your company does, you know, in terms of what you might sell different products and different services, but fundamentally they're all the same. So you've all got people, you've got buildings, you've got technology, you've got data, you've got suppliers, you know, and you've got the same challenges um, of all of those things combined. So actually, as I was sort of saying, is although you might do your actual, what you do is different, how you do it is actually very, very similar. And I always found that um, one of the things that I've always been very good at, and I think hence why I probably, you know, did I get into business continuity because I was good at being able to see that big picture or was it just a kind of a, like a, an output of that? But I think I've always been able to kind of take a step back and, and just look at how does the business interconnect with each other? And actually you can't have one without the other. So I remember it was always the very much the focus around that kind of crown jewels kind of philosophy. What is the most critical services? But actually that was also at the detriment to a lot of back office functions. So people used to forget about HR, they forget about IT, they forgot about marketing, um, legal, commercial, but they are your backbone to your company. So the front end doesn't work without the back end. So actually, when you look at then, how do I how do I look at all of that collectively as a big kind of ecosystem? Everything interconnects with each other, um, and I think that's kind of that. I almost kind of look at that as this is the, this is how we're operating now. Is no company can stand alone. They're all we're all kind of interconnected with each other in one way or another. And again, if I kind of then bring that back up to like COVID, and that's just brought it to the forefront. Um, just how independent, how intrinsically we're connected to all of each other. So I don't look at that then from a resilience perspective. Um, you know, there's no point being last man standing, you know, actually. So how, how's that a benefit to anybody? So actually, I, I see that there's then, you know, how do we, therefore, you have to think bigger, wider, all of those different things. And that's just something I've always been able to do. 
I've always been able to kind of um, to pinpoint the gaps in it within business continuity cybersecurity, wherever that gap is. And even I kind of look at cybersecurity doesn't work on its own. So you have to have the business continuity, you have to have the physical security, you have to have crisis management. So actually th th there's just one big ecosystem that operates as a collective um, to manage risk and to keep that business operational. How, how, do, you measure, sorry, how do you measure success then? Because I guess, um, you know, a good day at the office is probably when nothing happens, right? When you don't get attacked, you've dealt with something and everything's like been you know, kind of the, the well-oiled machine has come forward that we've, you know, you've practiced and prepared for and stuff. Is that like, do businesses measure their success on how well they've dealt with stuff or how well they, they feel, how prepared they feel? How, how, how do you feel, how do they measure your value? Well, <clears throat> I think it used to always be about, you know, prevention rather than, you know, so it was always, it wasn't very proactive. So it was always reactive. I think that was the issue. It was almost like you wait until you've had a major incident and then you do something about it. And I think that's, that's been the cycle for quite a number of years. Um, but then it's that, then it kind of got to, well, how do I actually prevent the incident from happening in the first place? So all those preventative controls, actually trying to have those plans in place and being proactive and doing the testing um, and all of those type of things. But actually, and, and I think it's that, again, it's now it's evolved to the point of assumed compromise. So we can't stop an incident from happening, no matter how much we try. Uh, we can't block every attack, we, you know, so actually that whole essence of resilience is absolutely critical. And it's almost, as you sort of say, it's, it's morphed from that traditional business continuity, that DR, that cybersecurity, to that position of resilience. So it's now come to the point is how quickly can I detect and how quickly can I recover? And that is the, that, that's the kind of the true measure, if you like, mm. um, because I think the, the way that the, you know, the type of uh, tactics and techniques that are being utilized are evolving is outstripping how fast we can actually bring the te our technology together up to to be able to actually um, counteract all of those things so because they don't and if you think about from a cyber criminals perspective they don't have laws and regulations they don't have any morals uh, <laughs> and they don't have any boundaries they don't have policies um, they don't have you know all of these kind of things that almost get in our way to a certain extent so we are always playing catch up and so actually so we have to be able to expect the unexpected. Uh, and, you know, so if you only plan for a specific scenario, that scenario is not, is what is the one thing that is never going to actually happen. <laughs> I can tell you that from a, and every single incident is always different. So, you know, and, and I think that the causes are different and whatever, but actually the impact is the thing that we should be planning for, not uh, not the scenario that caused it, if that makes sense. Mm. So you could have a myriad of different things that caused the data um, leakage or caused your server to go down or when well, no, your call center is not available, but your objective therefore is how do I recover that service as quickly and efficiently as possible, no matter what caused it to go down in the first place. I like that. Yeah, I like it. You, you say you've, as you're speaking, you, you mention um, a lot of uh, terminology used in frameworks. Um, 
do you have one framework or maybe two frameworks that that best fit um businesses today um or or, or do you do you generally just stick to nist because it's recognized pretty much globally albeit american framework well, yeah i I kind of sort of say is a lot of the um, standards, frameworks, that kind of thing. Um, they're a good starting place, but they're your minimum control, if you like. So we've got a lot of customers who are adopting this. So they've got ISO 21001, 22301, SOC 1, SOC 2, Cyber All of these things are great, but they are absolute minimum. And the reason why is because your security runs so much more dynamic than a lot of these different standards and that kind of thing. And a lot of the standards are a kind of like one size fits all. So the way that they're written and the way that they are implemented is, is a kind of at that minimum baseline. So one of the things that we talk, talk about within Microsoft, for example, is what when we have like our security best practices, and those times they run dynamic. They are they are operating to the latest level of security, and that's based on all of the telemetry analysis that we collect from all of the different signals. So every day, we process over eight trillion signals. Um, so we use lots of machine learning, lots of analytics. Um, we have lots of threat hunting, lots of honeypots, all of those things that we actively do. So we're looking at all of those different changes and attack vectors and on all of those different things combined. And that feeds itself back through the security. So there's a there's a difference between being compliant and being secure. And we always sort of say, so you could be compliant in this, but you might not be secure. So actually you have to have both running in parallel. But I think a lot of these frameworks and things are a good starting point, but you shouldn't then go, right, I've implemented this, I've been, or I've got 27,001 enough I've done my job because it doesn't work like that so I think a lot of the, the frameworks and a lot of the um, standards are a good way of baselining you know <clears throat> to the business or to the like suppliers and customers that you operate to a minimum baseline but that shouldn't be your only baseline I think that that's something that we run and that's what I said at the beginning we run at such a pace um, that a lot of the things they literally cannot catch up. They can't, you know, because you think that every time there's a reiteration, it takes a couple of years before that comes out. And I think even if you looked at like GDPR, when that came in a few years ago, um, I think was it, it took about what, five, six years for it to come to fruition in the first place. And that came about because of the um, amount of uptake that was in social media you know, years and years ago. Uh, but as soon as GDPR came out, it was out of date. So it's so like your your standards and your your um, are always playing catch up. And I think if like I also think about you know how much there there isn't a lot of regulatory standards around artificial intelligence or use of machine learning and that kind of thing. So we're almost kind of relying on a number of companies to have codes of practice or do the right thing because it's the right thing to do without actually being asked to do it. So there's that, that's that type of challenge, as I sort of said, we're always playing catch up, but the, the cyber criminals or the threat actors and, and that kind of thing have none of that. So they're not operating to any, any standard or moral compass whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally agree with you. I mean, from, from what, what I see, a lot of, a lot of businesses 
want to do you know what you say and have very good intentions but unfortunately they either a don't have the budget or b they don't have the 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 time or people to implement implement these um these controls or or standards what, what would you say is a great continual improvement plan for a small medium enterprise who might have one to two people looking at security not dedicated but looking at security how do those people get get it right to a point where they can feel comfortable and sleep at night yeah and i think it's a right i think it's a real challenge for you know smaller enterprises because as you said they don't have the technology they don't have the resources and those type of things but i think the, the fund we talk about a lot about security hygiene and fundamentals and those type of things um, so it's really, really important that they get, you know, make sure they've got the right patching, um, they've got the right antivirus and, and those type of basic, what we would probably say are just fundamental things that you should have no matter what. But actually the biggest benefit, I think, for a lot of small enterprises is actually to utilise the cloud um, as much as possible because a problem shared is a problem halved in essence. So if you're actually able to utilise the cloud, you have a, a lot of that um, security that's already built in. So you don't have to therefore be worrying about patching necessarily, um, dependent on the type of service that you've got. You get the benefit of the security, um, uh, as I sort of that kind of feedback loop that goes round. So as much as possible, we should be looking at how can we enable them to adopt these type of technologies as best as possible. But I think as for now, a lot of that is, is still around the fundamentals, but I even see there are many, many big companies that still do not grasp the fundamentals. Um, you know, there's a, there's a big deficit, for example, on, on just patching uh, mm. type of things and, and, you know, your ability to prevent and block phishing attempts and those type, you know, those type of things. But I think, uh, I, I think there's a, almost a duty of care as well in terms of big organizations helping smaller ones, um, whether that's through education, awareness, or making sure that you, know, you, you, you understand the role that they play. Again, and as I sort of said in that ecosystem, that supply chain. So what can we do collectively um, to actually enable those smaller organizations to understand the extent of the risk and also how they manage their risk? And, without all of those um, resources and technologies and things like that that we that bigger organizations have um then i definitely think there's the there's a piece around the education as well and making sure that they're security aware uh, with just some of those th what to look for you know how to protect themselves and how to recover as quickly as possible as well yeah good advice i think you're right yeah, embracing the cloud do it quickly and if you if you haven't you haven't done so already get read a book get on it <laughs> um so you onboarded during covid started a new role in microsoft super busy helping other customers other customers go through significant amount of change no doubt your days are super busy Yet you find the time also to be uh, a non-exec director. You do stuff like this. You do keynote speaking, etc. You're very prevalent in the industry, prominent in the industry, I should say. Um, how do you find the time uh, to do that? And then also, what what's the kind of um, talk to us a bit about the NED side of things? What are you involved in outside of your your current role? Um, it's actually quite interesting. It's literally touching on what we just talked about. So actually, I really really enjoy working with small companies. 
um, particularly sort of startups and, and those type of companies that are potentially don't have a voice in the market. Um, and they're trying to kind of like cut through all the noise and look at how does my product help in this environment. So actually, one of the companies that I've been involved in for over a year now is a company called Decipher Cyber. And the way that that company was actually born was to cut through the vendor noise. So actually, they sort of said, you know, there's probably they've they found for four or five thousand separate cybersecurity vendors all offering lots of different services. So actually, if you are an SME, if you are if you're not um, someone who's au fait with security, but you want to buy a particular service or you think you're supposed to buy a particular service, how do I make sense of all of these things? So a lot of companies will rely on just searching on Google or they'll go to, they'll go to Gartner, you know, the, the, where do I go to find out who all these different companies are, what services they offer, um, you know, on all of that. And that's what Decipher Cyber does in essence. So it's a kind of, it's an intelligent platform that brings all of that cybersecurity um, world in front of users. So they've got the ability to, to find, you know, and, and search for different capabilities, different services. And one of the things which the, um, the company's really keen on doing, so as much as we've got the likes, you know, the Cypher Cyber will find Kaspersky's and the Microsoft's and the, you know, the CrowdStrikes of the world, actually how there's some really niche um, specialist products and new companies that are also coming to the market. Um, so they want to they want to give a platform for them as well. So that's kind of what I'm involved in. And, and my, my, my role within that really is to provide kind of advisory to the company itself. Um, so one of the things that they really want to make sure is that they are technology and vendor agnostic. So it's not like you can't pay more for your company or your product to feature higher up. It's just your availability. So all of those companies are available if you like to search. Um, and that's where my interest is really. I, I, I'm looking at where I can help a lot of those, as I say, smaller companies get their product into the market and, and how they position themselves and that kind of thing. So I have a definite interest in just how do we, how do we build you know, that ecosystem with, with cybersecurity in particular. That's cool. There's something that uh, touches really close um, um, to my professional um, life as well. Um, I quite like looking at lots of different vendors and seeing what is snake oil and what's you know <laughs> and what's real. And there's there is a lot of it, and it's it's really it's really sad to see that there's um, because it's so easy to create a product. Uh, you know, now I wouldn't say it's easy because it is difficult to create products, but because it's so easy effectively to make a product and market it and, and, and sit and claim it to be a silver bullet. Unfortunately, I think you do get a lot of organizations getting, you know, trapped into technologies um, or, or, or buying a technology. They think it does one thing, but realistically it does another or it does nothing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I think, you know, decipher cipher, I think it's a very difficult for me to say decipher cipher. <laughs> Um, the cipher cyber. See, I can't say it. Um, uh, uh, it. I think it's cool that you, you know, that that business exists. Um, so, so how do you, for, for a normal organization that maybe hasn't found um, decipher cyber, like how how do how do how does a normal organization look at a vendor or look at a product and 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 think, well, that's what I want or that's what I need without paying 
X amount to uh, Gartner to look at their MQs and look at their reports? Yeah, so the actual product itself is free. So it's always will always be free to the end users. Brilliant. So it's available just to search you know, from an account perspective on the, as an app on your phone or just through a website. Um, and you can search for multiple different, you can you kind of do a contrast and compare as well against different products and different um, providers and that kind of thing. Um, and that was, I would say that it was always the uh, objective was to make it a free platform for users, but you know, it's not something you have to pay extra for, as I was sort of saying, to get that analysis or um, you can't pay to be to feature higher up. It's an equal playing field from that perspective. Just so because we were very, cautious and, and wanting to actually just have a let, enable multiples of different companies to have that voice it looks awesome i'm looking at it now it looks really good <laughs> i think it's a really good idea as well as you say you know make it free for the user but you know the vendors pay but it's all fair for everybody it seems to be the right way to do it right i'm almost tempted as well to have ashley say decipher cyber three times in a row and see if you can do it yeah i can do it now decipher <laughs> cyber yeah I've, I've got it yeah <laughs> um so yeah so uh, so secure horizons what what's that well this was actually my own company oh, okay um, yeah so i actually so i set that up probably beginning of this year um, it's just another way of me being able to actually um, provide advice and guidance. Again, mm. that kind of um, smaller SMEs, if you like, that kind of thing. Um, and that, that was just my way of, so the company itself um, was actually born out of security, secure, and horizons is the future. So it's so I have a real fascination about you know how is security, how is resilience, how is that all going to evolve as we move to the future. So actually, one of the things I'm really interested in is how is the AI, how is robotics, how are all of these things going to evolve, and you know, how is this all going to transform? So that's kind of where my interest in that result revolves around, really. Have you always had an interest in in technology? Or is this something that grew grew as you um, as you get older? Since I probably since I started working at Thames Water and I worked mm. on that, so the year two thousand program, it was really interesting to me um, to to work in that technology field. Yeah. But I've always since that point forth, so over the last like, twenty odd years, I've always liked technology, uh, and I always liked the the, the power that uh, uh, that technology can provide. Um, and I think with the way it can actually change people's lives and all of that. So my my kind of philosophy is really how do we look for the good and all of these things and how do we embrace that good? So I think when we a lot of the time when we're working in cybersecurity, for example, we always see the bad of technology, if you like, or the bad of those type of things. Um, but actually, the, the capabilities are there to do to, to do so much good. And that's a bit I'm interested in. Yeah, that's awesome. I'm also keen as well. Um, before we uh, before we wrap up with you, I'm, I need to get some tips, I and mean, this is selfishly as well. I'll be honest with you, uh, but hopefully beneficial for others as well. You, you spend your a lot of your time communicating, as you said, with C-suite, with execs, etc., at high level within businesses. What what kind of tips would you give people for communicating at that level? How do you get key messages across, and what skills are important that's put you in this position? So to communicate with C-suites and, and have them pay attention? Uh, well, first of all, you need to speak their language. 
So you need to talk, you have everything you have to actually make, put it into a business context. So I think people, a lot of people who work in IT or work in cyber um, probably speak a little bit too techy. If I, you know, I think yep. and actually when you're then trying to portray some of these really complex issues and those type of things, um, you know, that's what we sort of said at the beginning is, you know, cyber is a business problem. It's not an IT. It's not a, it's not a cyber problem. We've got to kind of look at it from this much, much bigger perspective. So if you can put as much of this into language that people understand and that they, they get, they're going to be more likely to actually therefore make that investment, make the changes that need to happen because we're actually talking their language. And that was something... I always found that again, I was very good at doing. So I always thought was that I was almost like an interpreter when I was at AXA. And this is when I was working in disaster recovery. So I almost found like I was being that sort of middleman, middle woman, if you like. So I'd actually have the, the business people and the IT people speaking completely different languages and winding each other up. So they're always like this all the time. Because they're like, you don't get me, you don't get what I'm talking about and all of this kind of stuff. So I was almost, almost having to literally decipher <laughs> What, what each person was saying and putting it into a, so I had to take what the business was saying and putting it into an IT context and then take what the IT people were saying, put it into a business context. Um, but I always sort of describe myself anyways, I always work on the business side of cyber. So actually it's, it's, it's putting all of these things um, into a business context because I think we're quite guilty about, about talking a lot of acronyms and, and oh, talking yeah about really cool technologies that people just don't understand and it, it makes sense of people who operate in that area but actually if you're trying to get the business to adopt these new technologies and services and this that and the other um, it's just really important that they they understand from their perspective what it means and that means actually changing the way that we speak to different areas of the business as well so so you know talking about um data protection in the realm of HR versus marketing versus, you know, a call center for example, is, is, is very different. And I also think that's why when you look at cybersecurity awareness training, that one size fits all does not work. It doesn't work at all. It has to be tailored to the audience. And, and that's really what it comes down to is, is just tailoring your message to the audience knowing who the audience are and, and kind of what's keeping them up at night really so if you can if you can help them to solve their problem whatever that problem is <laughs> that that's that's the crux of it really that's really what it is it's all about yeah as, as we've done this series um a, a lot of people do um uh, talk about actually the business side of cybersecurity and how important it is and i think there's a, there's a lot of transferable skills you know you don't have to be technical to work in cybersecurity you know, you can have a business mind or a a risk mind, or from you, your perspective, a business disaster to cover. <laughs> See, I can't talk. A business disaster <laughs> recovery. I know I'm, I'm tripping myself up here. Um, so I think I think it is really interesting to have that those types of um, mindsets. Um, from from your perspective and your your career, you know, as as being a female in a very male dominated world, um, how how have you found it? Um, you know, positive and negative, really. Um, I've never, I've never felt as a detriment to me um, being a female in a mostly male-dominated area. Um, <clears throat> I thought I felt like I'd had to work a little bit harder 
but more so from my age as opposed to my gender. So I actually felt like when I was um, starting out, um, when I was probably in my early 20s, it took a long time for that credibility um, to, to come through, um, particularly when you're working in the realm of a consultant. So you really have to prove yourself and you have to be able to, to kind of walk the walk, if you like, to kind of show that you've had all those experiences and all of those things combined. Um, but I never, I've never really, uh, you know, I know other people have, but I, for me personally, I never felt like I was um, victimized or I haven't been really harassed. I, I felt very supported. Um, but it was more of a challenge to get my voice heard. I think that was that was the, probably the, the key for me. Mm, that's interesting. So you say that b- people didn't feel because because you were young in a in a, a, a an area which was very dominated by you know uh, you know I, some of my mates were consultants, so it's very dominated by more senior or seasoned people. People didn't under you would say something that was very very credible, but they didn't believe you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, yeah, that's quite interesting. It's kind of undermining your opinion because you mm. don't have an opinion, if you like, until you've actually, you know, been in that role or, you know, worn the shirt a few times. So that, I, as I say, I, I felt more of it was a challenge for me or my age at the time. Maybe a little bit to do with being a woman, but I never felt like it was a major obstacle to me. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. So how, how have you built credibility? Is that through time? Or have you, you know, done lots of um, speaking, public speaking courses or lots of education? I know you've done quite a lot of education, but how, how did you build that credibility? Um, practice what I preach is a lot of mm. it, I think, because I think when you're sometimes you're a consultant, it's kind of like do as I say, what not as I do. So it's very easy to point holes, you know, in, in other people's plans and processes. And we see that a lot, you know, in the media, when someone's had a cyber, a big cyber breach, it's very easy, well, you should have done X, Y, Z. Um, but actually your, your credibility comes through experience and actually doing the things that you're actually talking about. So I think it's it's been really beneficial for me, for example, to have actually gone through several major incidents and been on the front line of, of major incidents as well. So actually, I think back to 2009, I actually call that my year of crisis. I actually had three major events in succession. Um, So one of them, the first one was actually a a major fraud of one of our IT partners. Um, And we were actually locked in a basement for about eight weeks. That sounds sounds worse than it is. Um, But actually we had to, we had to think about how are we going to take on an entire service from a partner without any um, experience, without any instructions, without anything. So that was that kind of, it sounds a bit of a cliche, but it was a real thinking outside of the box um, scenario as well. Um, So that lasted, it was continuous for about eight weeks. Um, And then straight out of that, we actually had the H1N1, the global pandemic. Um, So so that went on for several months. And there was no, there was no precedent to that, you know, I I mean, even when people sort of say now is like, well, COVID was, is a bit of a um, black swan event. It's like, no, it isn't, because this happened 10 years ago, you know, we should have known this was coming. This is not the first pandemic we've had. Um, But that was, that was, I was working on a a global account. uh, And again, it was like, how do we keep our services up and running? How do we keep all of these things? 
very much on the fly. And then the third incident was actually a mass industrial action um, by some employees that had gone on strike because um, there was a massive load of redundancies. So actually, I think you actually have to have been in that front seat, if you like, to, to kind of say, I've been there. I know I've, you know, I've been on the front line. I've been on this in these really stressful situations and bringing all of that experience together. I think it's really important as opposed to I read a book and now I'm an expert and I'm just going to regurgitate that book back at you. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's kind of like all of those things combined, really. I think that's what's really I find what's really important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you've had a very insightful career um, and thank you for sharing your, your story with us. I think um, there's a lot of, of kind of fundamental principles that people can take away around the importance of business continuity. Um, also, I, I love the stuff about Decipher Cyber uh, and how um, businesses can adopt that approach to looking uh, at the marketplace to, to hopefully secure their environments in a, in a, in a fair way, right? Uh, that's, that's vendor agnostic. So thank you for sharing that as well. Um, and I've, I've definitely made some notes around the communication <laughs> tips and stuff around yeah, dealing definitely. with C-suite and execs and stuff. So lots of stuff that you've shared with us today. It's very insightful. I really appreciate you taking the time oh, to, uh, to spend with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me. Cool.